Welcome to the 228th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. I recently spent a rainy Saturday with around 130 other folks hiking through some of the 3,000 acres of prairie habitat that dot Big Stone County, near the headwaters of the Minnesota River. Armed with binoculars, nets, field guides, and smartphone apps, we were participating in what is called a bioblitz, a kind of ecological scavenger hut where members of the community team up with naturalists to see how many species of birds, mammals, insects, plants, and even fish they can identify in a day's time. Over the past few years, the Land Stewardship Project has been involved in putting on several bioblitzes in the region. The one held in Big Stone County was sponsored by LSP, Clean Up the River Environment, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Morris Wetland District, and the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. One of the goals of a bioblitz is to introduce members of the public to all of the natural wonders that exist right in their own backyard. It's delightful to watch a group of children excitedly making the connection between how many dragonflies they see and the health of the grasslands and wetlands in the area. But the BioBlitz events LSP has been involved with attempt to pass on another key message. If you care about things like tall grass prairie habitat, you need to look at the big picture. That means paying attention not only to how that habitat is managed on public lands, but what's going on in the community that surrounds those natural areas. Is the farmland being managed in a way that soil health is being improved, thus reducing the kind of runoff that can have a negative impact on public lands? Is the ag economy able to support enough small and medium-sized farms that diversified production systems can compete with monocropping? Frankly, are there enough people living in the local community to care about what happens to that landscape, whether it be on public or private land? At one point during the BioBlitz in Big Stone County, participants took a break from their nature hikes and listened in on a panel discussion involving a wildlife refuge specialist and a few local farmers. They talked about how managed grazing of cattle is being used by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the area to control invasive species and otherwise provide the kind of regular disturbance grassland habitat relies on. This mixing of agriculture and conservation provides farmers a way to take pressure off their own pastures while providing wildlife managers habitat improvement services. And because those private pastures are given a break, farmers are starting to see some ecological benefits on their own lands, including healthier soil and greater grassland resiliency. In a sense, such arrangements can extend the ecological and economic benefits of healthy grasslands beyond arbitrary public and private boundaries. After the panel discussion, I chatted with a few of the people who are involved with utilizing grazing to improve grassland habitat in the region. First, I talked with J.B. Bright and Jeff Clagus. Bright is a wildlife refuge specialist in the Morris Wetland Management District, which covers eight counties in western Minnesota. His district includes 250 waterfowl production areas, totaling around 54,000 acres. Annually, Bright works with over two dozen livestock farmers, who pay a fee to graze around 4,000 acres of fish and wildlife land. Jeff, along with his wife Mary, raises polled Hereford cattle near Ortonville, Minnesota, and has been grazing fish and wildlife service land for around a dozen years. J.B. Bright started our conversation by talking about why regular disturbance is so important with natural habitat and what his main management objectives are when bringing animals onto these public lands. The most common management objective is litter layer reduction. So the litter layer is all the, the old grass. Mm-hmm. That, that can build up through lack of disturbance and get to a thickness that becomes unattractive for nesting, ground, grassland bird nesting. And so whether we're using fire to 
clean up that litter layer or cattle or grazing. We need to kind of take it back down. When we're done uh, implementing the grazing, then the litter layer will slowly build back up over a period of three to five years, and then it'll be time to take it back down again. That's our most common objective. On remnant prairie tracks, those are those are areas that are original prairie, have never been broken with the, the plow. They're very diverse usually in their uh, plant community, uh, over 100 to 150 species of different plants. About every two weeks, there's something different blooming, and so they're... Uh, a wonderful nectar resource for pollinators and things. On units that have that, we're trying to keep Kentucky bluegrass and smooth brome grass from invading, and then a lot of times uh, trees as well. Grazing can be one of several tools that we employ, a lot of times in concert with each other. And then we have uh, where we have maybe restored a site, um, or I call them prairie reconstructions, where we planted 50 to 75 native species, and we're trying to maintain those too, and, and maintain that expensive diversity that we put out there, and keep those those non-natives, keep the trees out, and um, and then uh, we do have a lot of fields that were seeded just to your dominant native grasses, the big blue stems, the switch grasses, and Indian grasses, and in those cases, um, the timing is not quite as critical. If you put livestock on those in the early spring, they're not going to have a lot to eat because those are all warm season native grasses. So it does affect the timing. If, if I have a unit that's like 90% that cover type, then it, we're going to go with a midsummer kind of grazing because that's when that stuff is palatable and growing. And, and then uh, we do have um, uh, sites that were seeded to actually smooth brome and alfalfa, maybe even sweet clover, timothy, you know, what they call tame grasses and that was a dense nesting cover was the, the terminology, you know, at the time. And on there, I'm trying not to hurt, you know, the dominant vegetation, either with my burn timing or with my grazing. But I do want to take the litter layer down. And sometimes I have a unit that's a hodgepodge of all those things, you know. And maybe we divide it up accordingly, adjust our timing on the different habitat types. Well, one thing you'd mentioned is this is going to be a much more conservative rotation than what a commercial livestock producer might be used to. Describe what that, what a typical rotation well, would be. Well, um, the stocking rate for when they're in there is much heavier than what you typically find on a commercial operation. When you look at it over time, it's much more conservative. So, for instance, one that uh, the gentleman sitting next to me here uh, Graze uh, it was Rothy was what 1,200 acre unit, mm-hmm. and that includes water. And we grazed about a third of it, and we split that into three or four different cells. And um, they didn't spend more than 30 days in any one cell. Uh, and I got the ideal timing on at least one cell. Um, so they went from they started out probably early May on the one, and then June on the other, and then July, and then. You know, maybe they were off if it was four cells and maybe August and then they were off, you know. And, and then there was some wild parsnip in one of those, you know, so we tried to make sure they got in there when that was before it had gone to seed and the cattle would eat that for us. And everything I do, whether it's when I give the burn list to the our fire management officer or uh, make up a haying list or grazing, everything's got objectives to it mm-hmm. and timing and uh, different strategies to achieve those. So a lot of thought and planning and science are behind it all. 
Jeff Clagus says grazing the Fish and Wildlife Service land has benefited his farm financially by taking pressure off the forages growing on his own pastures. It's also producing some benefits that aren't as easy to tabulate economically. Jeff, so you you said you really uh, weren't using this to expand your herd numbers. You were just using it as a way to kind of alleviate pressure on your pastures. That's kind of the way you've been using it. Yeah, that's the way we've used it ever since we started um, working with Fish and Wildlife. And it's you can see that our pastures... Native prairie pastures have been rejuvenated because they haven't had the grazing that they used to have on them. Yeah, what kind of things are you seeing there? Uh, more of the native grasses coming, some of the forbs, some of the native flowers. A lot more of the native flowers are coming now. What would be a typical, so you would get a call maybe from JB or you would contact him about grazing or how does that work? When we first started, um, they were working with adjacent landowners that had cattle to the WPAs and now it's... Um, put out on bids where we get notified through the mail that there are cells or units coming up for bid and then we have to put in a bid on them. You you feel like it's really been a win-win for you. You've seen benefits for the livestock and sounds like you've been seeing some cool stuff as far as some habitat improvement and some animals, even stuff like that. Yeah, we've seen it both on our pastures and on the fish and wildlife too. So fish and wildlife, we've started seeing uh, white lady slippers out in some of the areas that we've grazed. On the WPAs, uh, we've been doing a lot of control for noxious weeds with the wild parsnip, and JB had a, the first two-year grazing period that we had on a parcel for wild parsnip control. There was a uh, adjacent pasture or cell on that WPA that didn't hadn't been grazed, and after two years, he could go out there and right where the fence had been, you could see exactly where the parsnip had been grazed down and eliminated, and you looked across where it hadn't been grazed those two years, and it was quite a bit out there yet wow. so and it described the burrowing owls you saw some burrowing owls uh, yeah, recently that was uh two years ago i believe we had burrowing owls out on one of the deep wpas a uh, pair of them uh, i followed them around trying to get pictures but i didn't have a good enough camera so God, that must have been neat. yeah it was and are you uh is your land bordering these areas or do you have to transport the cattle we do have to transport. Um, usually they had been within one or two miles, but the, last year I ended up getting a parcel that's like 25 miles away. little leery of it because if animals get out, it takes a while to get there, and it was along a highly traveled highway. But um, the Fish and Wildlife has the perimeter fences that they install and either four-strand barbed or high-tensile hot wires, and they seem to be able to keep the cattle in very easily. I assume that the forage quality isn't quite what you would have on your some of your domesticated pastures. I mean, but, but how does that compare? It must be worth it for you getting a good enough forage quality. Um, with our native prairie pastures, it's very comparable where we've got the um, cool season grasses like brome or timothy. I probably see a little bit better gain on my calves, but then we're able to, we're putting them out there earlier normally too because those are his cool season grasses. So, um, Well, one of the things that I think JB you had mentioned was this idea that, and it sounds like something you guys have observed this as well, that people express concern that maybe the grazing is affecting nesting, ground nesting. Mm. But you you feel like it's not really, that it, it's not as a big negative impact. Yeah, I think unless a, a duck or songbird nests right in front of a gate yeah. <laughs> or in the corner where they might bunch up because of flies, the cattle are going to graze around the nest as they're eating because, you know, they're in there for 30 days. It's a... It's, casual kind of grazing you know they they just uh eat around it uh they don't trample it because they're not in a trampling scenario so i i think it therefore is uh, one of the friendlier tools we have you know when we when we hay stuff a lot of times uh we're haying due to like 
for can of thistle suppression. Unfortunately, that stuff goes to seed in early July and um, towards the tail end of the peak nesting period, you know. So we have them, uh, we have an area hayed, you're in danger of cutting heads off and because yeah. the hens are going to hold even tighter because they're at the tail end of their nesting mm-hmm. and then with burning of course it's you be, create a moonscape and they have to start over yeah i think it's our friendliest tool for management for nesting is that something you've observed jeff yeah and i can testify that to that too um when we go out and check the cattle you know we'll flush pheasants or ducks off a nest and it's very obvious that the cattle are avoiding those areas whether they can sense that the the duck or the pheasant hen is sitting there and they just avoid it but yeah we've never seen a nest destroyed and it seems like the areas that are getting grazed maybe have a little bit more uh, production for the waterfowl and the upland game birds too have you talked to other farmers who other livestock producers who are doing this kind of thing that uh, i mean it sounds like it if you're in an area like this, that it can be a really great way to, like you said, give your own pastures a break, help them get started. Not so much expand your grazing areas as as maybe kind of diversify them a little bit, or I'm not sure, you know. Diversification is really nice. Um, I just wish a lot of the other cattle producers would use utilize it that way too, because the intent is to, what we would try and do is acre for acre do an exchange where if we're using fish and wildlife 80 acres, we'd like to leave 80 acres of our own pasture lay that year. I will interject that um, this year I, on an experimental basis, tried a, a grass banking arrangement as part of the bid. They had to complete a, a bid for what they were going to rest. Oh, uh-huh. And I had a scoring system for what they were resting. Uh, location, acres, and things like that. Um, was it in a easement program? And I, I might expand the use of that, mm-hmm. especially on some of these um, bigger units that we're grazing for the majority of the of the growing season. Otherwise, our system is all about who who can pay the most. I don't always want that. You know, well, <laughs> we're not doing it for the money. We're doing it for the tool right. and the effect. You know, so I want people to understand that. Well, I think that brings up an, a really interesting point in that you, on the face of it, maybe you, there's this there's this common resource forage, and but you guys have maybe different goals for how to use why you want to use that. Yeah. But that this is a way to kind of come together on a little bit to get that habitat improvement, but also mm-hmm. to get the livestock uh, feed that you need, and and to to also kind of spread those ecological benefits across public and private landscapes a little bit. That idea that you can spread that those benefits. Both for the farmer, but for the public lands across those boundaries that maybe sometimes are kind of boundaries people don't cross a little bit. And, you know, the term for it is grass banking, where they're resting their own. And so we graze about 35 units. I'm going to say I probably have 28 different permittees. And um, the ones that are the best to work with are the ones that, hey, um, they've been in this long and everything. Can you take a look at it and see if you're getting the effect you want, you know, should they stay in a little longer? Should I pull them out, you know, or whatever? They're really concerned and, and, and they seek to understand my objectives and they're really concerned about achieving them. And they're great about getting fence up and, and maintaining and checking it and everything and keeping the animals where they're supposed to be and, and all those sorts of things. Pretty sure this is something you mentioned, Jeff, that you 
make a note of going out, say, after the when the pheasant opener and talking to folks about kind of what you're doing out there to explain? Because that can be a little bit of a shock for people to see livestock on a wildlife uh, yeah. management area. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, we were doing a um, extens- or grazing on a WPA where we were going to be grazing late into the season so that JB could do some winter seeding with native grasses and forbs, and he wanted it grazed down heavy. So once the pheasant season opened up, I just made a point of being there every morning about 9 o'clock to explain to the hunters which fences were hot, which to avoid. You know, here you could shut a fencer off and then please turn it back on. And then at the same time, explain why the cattle were out there at that time of the year. You know, normally the hunters come out, they don't run into cattle on the WPAs. And just explaining to them what the intent was with the reseeding and uh, lake grazing on it. Yeah, and that was... I think a 42-acre area out of a 1,200-acre WPA. Yeah, yeah. It was just, a, but it was right um, by the main entrance and everything. And, and he, uh, thank you for doing that, by the way. And I will say, you know, the, uh, the office we've made some signs. We've been putting out, you know, for different, depending on the objectives of the site, you know, including tree control because we we hire contractors to take trees off. Um, we're about open grassland habitat, you know, and the signs basically have just a very short verbiage. And then if you have questions, here's a number to call. Uh, and I've had other producers where they've had encounters with neighbors or whatever that maybe didn't have an agricultural background, uh, and they just saw the cattle out there, and they're like, "What in the world?" And so they done their best to explain it but then they've also said well call jb you know and i'm happy to have conversations with people that have open minds did you some of the hunters you talked to did they seem to be all the ones we talked to were really receptive my wife actually had a conversation with one hunter that was out there that year and he had gone come out from the cities to pheasant hunt his last pheasant hunt with his old dog and he was happy to have the area that had been grazed down because there were paths where the cattle had walked the vegetation wasn't quite as heavy and the hunting for the dog wasn't as bad and he actually got to have the dog get on some birds, point, and shoot for his last time. Mary Clegas, who, along with working their farm's livestock, teaches language arts in high school and is a master naturalist, shared with me some of the ecological perks of being involved with a grazing arrangement that benefits their pastures as well as the waterfowl production areas. With my upbringing, I pay attention to those kinds of things, and I'm in tune to those. So when we were grazing the land and we saw those small white lady slippers come, I got extremely excited. And and like anything, I think when your perception changes, then of course you start realizing what's out there that you hadn't seen before. So you see one group of small white lady slippers, and suddenly you see them all over Mm. in a pasture. And the same thing happened the year that we grazed the piece that the wild onion came on, and we had not seen those blooms. And then suddenly you had those tall stems with those beautiful pink flowers, and I didn't know what they were and did the research and realized that they came and usually in areas that are disturbed and so being aware of the changing perception and then looking for those things and seeing what had occurred was just really cool to me because that's part of my background regardless of the agriculture so I guess as far as those two plants that's what was really cool and is this something you observed on just on the habitat or did you see it on your land too did you see some of this stuff primarily on the habitat and i think definitely the wildlife is a part of it though Mm -hmm. we see very definitely a large number of um, ducks and geese and quite a few songbirds that Mm -hmm. end up using those areas uh, because we're not grazing them as heavily as we have in the past Well, that's the, I think that was a, thing, a point that really came home to me was this idea that you have these wildlife areas on public lands, but when you can have an arrangement like that where 
farmers like you are able to take pressure off your own pastures and, and maybe allow some habitat to develop, then that spreads those conservation benefits across those boundaries a little bit. Correct, yes. So that does allow us to be a little bit less conventional in the way that we graze because we have those options. As a master naturalist, this must be really interesting for you to almost see, kind of kind of be on the ground floor of seeing some developments as far as maybe you are going to see some habitat benefits on your own farm and, and, and also kind of looking at, I don't know, noticing things maybe you hadn't noticed before uh, just, when you, just when you were farming it. Mm-hmm. And I was particularly excited about this master naturalist program because it was the prairies and potholes Mm. and having grown up in northern Minnesota I understand the pothole dynamic but the prairie component of it with all of the different grasses and the forbs and those kinds of things I did not know much about and so that program yes was very exciting for me to be able to start to learn some of those kinds of things and be able to identify I think that will be part of our grazing on our own property also because now there are things there that I will identify that I didn't realize before were perhaps some of those native plants that are able to grow stronger in their populations Mm -hmm. because of this rotational grazing so that I'm excited for that new knowledge to be able to look at what we actually have that I just didn't recognize before. Were you a little bit surprised that that they're through this training and you know you come from a farming background obviously farming could be done in a way that maybe could benefit some of this habitat was that something surprising to you or did you kind of know that? I think I kind of knew that beforehand Mm -hmm. because of my background my husband's background it always because we enjoy recreation in the outdoors and the hunting and the fishing and the conservation that goes along with that, it's always about taking care of the land and making sure that we're treating it appropriately so that, you know, that old adage is very true. You take care of it, it takes care of you. What's exciting about this is it seems to be an area where those two areas can kind of come together, this, you know, this idea of working lands conservation, where you don't, the choices aren't just, we don't do anything on this land at all. There are places for that, you know, wilderness areas, that kind of thing. But that that isn't always the choice, that you can have economic activity on land and get those those environmental benefits. Well, and I think like many other things in the world, it all comes down to the communications factor. If we're able to communicate with what the goals are and what the purposes are and the intent, then people are much more able to buy into what's going on on these lands. Mm -hmm. And the people that manage those lands are much more able then to understand also that there are multiple uses that can happen on those kinds of properties. So yeah, that's very exciting to think that we can look at multiple opportunities for people rather than simply limiting land to one purpose that seems to that's what struck me was there seems to be really good communication between like jb and and people like you in that it's kind of a common resource it's let's you know in general grass or forage uh, type of thing and he has a different goal for it it's habitat than maybe you do but that there are areas where you can kind of there's there's just enough agreement in there somewhere correct and the other part of that then is also educating the public because even when we look at grazing if you don't take the time to research what the purpose of grazing on a specific unit of ground is, you can have two units right next door to each other and they have totally different goals and totally different management techniques and therefore a different look to them. So you might go past some place where cattle have grazed a piece of ground to almost the ground and you wonder what in the world's going on and it looks like it's being abused. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at a reseeding opportunity that's coming up and, and all we're doing is trying to eliminate that cover so that seed can get into the ground, that's different than trying to eat down the brome in a way that it will 
be set back, but not overgraze it so that the brome comes back stronger than ever. And if you don't know what the management plan is, then you can misinterpret. So yeah. I think the communication is also very key there in terms of letting the public know yeah. what's going on and what the program is. Finally, I talked with Robin Moore, an LSP organizer who helped coordinate the BioBlitz. She talked about how seeing privately owned livestock being used to help with ecological restoration on public habitat can help people make the connection between the health of the land and the health of our communities. So Robin, we this BioBlitz I think is a really good example of something you had talked about. People went out, they, they were able to kind of get a acquainted with their wild backyard, so to speak, and, and see some of the critters out there, plants, insects, that type of thing. But what was a, ni- a nice kind of um, addition to that was we had a panel discussion here of farmers and uh, a J.B. Bright with the Fish and Wildlife Service where they talked about utilizing conservation grazing as another way to improve this habitat and that that was kind of an important element of it. And one of the things you had talked about at the end of that panel discussion was this idea that what we're trying to get across with something like a bio blitz is not just, hey, look, there's all this cool, wild elements out there, but that it takes, it's this combination of things. It's the land, it's the people working together, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think a lot of people want to think about these these issues in isolation. They want to talk about importance of farming and farming communities, or they want to talk about the usefulness and and beauty of public lands, or they want to talk about the intense, incredible neatness of all these prairie species. And the whole premise of the BioBlitz is to really bring this understanding that if you love native prairie, then you also have to support and understand public lands and you also in knowing that it takes animal impact to really manage public lands well then you also have to be aware of and care about the farming community around that and so it's not just about your buying choices and buying grass-fed meat or whether or not you buy something that is um, linked to supporting native prairie it's about understanding how those pieces fit together and work together and understand how your voting choices, your the memberships or the charities or organizations you support, the shopping you do, the way you you make a lot of decisions in this world, how they're all they all work together, and that it's important to see yourself inside of that community. I think that's a really good way to put it, and it's a, it's a way to also say that some of these habitat areas, these wildlife area boundaries that it's, we should be looking beyond those onto the private lands. Because a really good example of this was the farmers talking about they are able to help these wildlife areas control invasive species, kind of reach some of the goals that they have with habitat. But at the same time, that relieves pressure on their pastures, and they're seeing improvements not only in the productivity of those pastures, but in the, the ecological health of those farms. And in the water quality. I mean, this is all linked also. So this... What is happening here in this farmland affects water quality all the way down the Mississippi. So, I mean, it really, it's so intensely connected, and this is a really fun way to get excited about those connections. For more information on LSP's work to help farmers profitably provide ecosystem services in their communities, see landstewardshipproject.org. There you can also get more information on the Western Minnesota BioBlitz events. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org 
or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. 